You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dan Rasmussen. Dan is the founder and portfolio manager at Verdad Capital. Before starting Verdad, Dan worked at Bain Capital and Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund operated by Ray Dalio. He is also a New York Times bestselling author and was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2017. During our conversation, we chat about how interning at Bridgewater Associates impacted Dan as an investor, the four types of economic environments that ultimately drive asset class returns, which asset class performs very well during an inflationary time period, why small cap value stocks are potentially a great way to diversify your portfolio, why Dan prefers to avoid investing in China, and much more. I hope you enjoy this very insightful conversation with Dan Rasmussen. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today I'm joined by Dan Rasmussen. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, Dan, we bring a lot of different types of investors on the show, and many of them follow something similar to the Warren Buffett school of thought. That approach includes pretty much avoiding anything macro, as the belief is that there are just too many moving pieces and it's very difficult to predict what could happen in various scenarios. However, you're not really in that school of thought. You started your investment career interning at Bridgewater Associates, which is the largest hedge fund in the world, founded by Ray Dalio. Could you talk a little bit about Dalio's impact on you and your development as an investor? Absolutely. I studied history and literature in college. I actually wrote a book about a slave revolt in New Orleans. So my first introduction to business and investing and having any job at all was actually interning at Bridgewater my uh, summer of my junior year. And it had a huge influence on me. I'd say first, it showed me that investing, they used to say investing is the intellectual Olympics, right? You've got all of these really smart people trying to compete to generate alpha, and it's really hard and it's really scarce. But ultimately, it's this competition, right? Who has the best ideas? That had a big influence on me. And I think that the next thing that had a big influence on me was the general framework through which Bridgewater seemed to approach investing, which was to say investment strategies should be logical, they should follow a logic, and they should backtest well, right? You should be able to prove that they work empirically. So there's a burden of proof. You know, if someone says, hey, gee, you know, stocks do well when interest rates go down. You know, you don't just say, okay, great, interest rates are going down, so stocks should go up, right? You say, well, gee, let's pull all the data, take a look at that. Is that true over all of time or just recently? What about in other markets? 
And that really turned me on to this idea, which led me down the path eventually to quantitative or quantum mental investing of taking a look at the data and seeing what the data says, as opposed to relying on stories or memes or theories. And I think if you compare and contrast that approach with Buffett's approach, right? Buffett is not necessarily backtesting his strategies or using a lot of quantitative tools. He has a simple formula, however, that has worked for him for a long time. And I think there are a lot of quants that have tried to diagnose what that formula is and replicate it. But I think at its heart, it's started out doing deep value and then transitioned into doing large, high-quality value. And I think that's sort of the story of Buffett. And I think the final question that you asked was about the relationship of macro to the buy and hold equity approach. And I'd say that they're not contradictory, right? A large empirical understanding of the world would lead you to say that most investors should have the majority of their money in low cost passive equity index funds or the equivalent, right? If you said, I want to choose choose 10 stocks or whatever, but broadly, that's the conclusion, right? Active management doesn't seem to work by and large. Diversification out of equities tends to reduce your long-term returns. And so for most people, the right answer is to have the vast majority of your money in long only, in essentially low-cost passive index funds that charge next to nothing and provide you with broad equity exposure. But I think then there's the temptation or desire to do something around that, right, to change your return patterns. And I think there are a few things that people often are interested in achieving. I think the first thing they're often interested in achieving is saying, hey, can I achieve higher returns, right? What's going to beat an all-equity portfolio? That's hard, but possible maybe. The next thing is reducing risk. And I think I think about risk as drawdown reduction, right? So the peak to trough drawdown in an all-equity portfolio could be 50 or 60%, right? So if you say, gee, you know, I've spent my entire life and I'm 65 and I've got 10 million, and then in the year that you turn 66, there's a 50% drawdown, now you've got 5 million, you know, you ain't going to be too happy. So drawdown mitigation is another worthwhile goal. Um, and I think some people pursue that through diversification or through asset allocation. And I think that's another reasonable goal. So I think I'm very interested in these questions, these problems of, gee, within equities, what has over the long term beaten a broad market index? And are there times that it's easier or harder to beat an equity index? And then the second question is thinking about asset allocation and diversification. What else do I need to complement my equity portfolio? to diversify it, to reduce risk and enhance the returns of my total portfolio, assuming that I still have a large portion of my wealth in low-cost passive index funds. And those are the intellectual questions I've been grappling with one way or the other since I started my career, whether that's at Bridgewater or Bain Capital or now for Dad. You know, a big reason I wanted to have you on the show was to just give our audience members a fresh perspective as we seem to be entering this changing and very uncertain economic times with the higher inflation we've seen and rising interest rates. And we're going to talk about all of that. To transition our conversation, in your work, you outline that Dalio has four macroeconomic conditions that investors might find themselves in. That includes the four iterations of whether GDP is rising or falling and whether inflation is rising or falling. Could you talk about what the overall economic conditions have looked like over the past decade and where it looks like we seem to be heading? 
So I think if you think about sort of traditional answers to asset allocation or diversification, they basically take mean variance models and they take long-term correlations between asset classes, assign weights to them, mix them up, et cetera. I think another approach is to say, well, asset class correlations are unstable because they're based on macroeconomic drivers. Take, for example, growth and inflation, which I think are the two primary drivers of asset class returns. When inflation is low, when you have no low inflation or minimal inflation, stocks and bonds will be perfectly inversely correlated or almost perfectly inversely correlated based on growth. When growth is going up, you'll have rising rates and low bond returns, but high stock returns. Conversely, when rates come down, when growth goes down, rates go down, bonds go up, and stocks go down. You introduce inflation to that mix, however, as we have recently. And you can find that stocks and bonds can go down at the same time because the inflationary pressures that are hitting both and the negative growth pressures are driving bond yields up and stocks down at the same time. Conversely, you can think of other asset classes like gold or oil and how they perform, right? Oil and gold both theoretically do well when inflation is rising because they're commodities. But it turns out that oil is very sensitive to growth as well, typically now. This uh, last few months have been somewhat of an exception, but typically when you have high inflation and low growth, the stagflation, oil can crash as demand destruction occurs. And on the other hand, gold can hold up very, very well. Or if you're coming out of a recession and you've got low inflation but high economic growth, you can see big rises in oil prices. So oil ends up being quite growth dependent, even though most people think of it as an inflation hedge. So I think trying to then think through those macroeconomic relationships Uh, leads you to different conclusions about asset class returns. Traditional mean variance models, for example, um, don't find huge use for gold. I think there's a lot of skepticism about why you'd want to own gold, for example, in a portfolio. But people that approach the world from a growth and inflation perspective get really excited about gold, right? You can go read all Ray Dalio's old notes where he's super excited about gold. Why? Why are people excited who look at the world from a macro lens? Why are they excited about gold? Well, if you start from a stagflationary period, high inflation and falling growth, gold is going to do well in those periods because it's an inflation hedge. But what naturally or typically happens during stagflationary periods is that stagflation increases the risk of recessions and sharp drawdowns in equity markets. And what happens with sharp drawdowns in equity markets or market panics is that people push into gold as a flight to safety asset. The world's falling apart. I wish I owned gold. So you have this whole back half of the cycle from stagflation into recession where gold is doing really well. Now, the minute the economy starts recovering, gold tanks. But if you think about what other asset class is going to perform well in both of those quadrants, right? Equities, no. You know, bonds, no. Right? So it's playing this really unique role in your asset allocation mix. And so you come to these interesting, you know, I think novel conclusions looking at the world through the lens of growth and inflation about how to adapt a portfolio to make it robust to economic scenarios we might have or might not have in the future. We haven't had meaningful high inflation since the 70s, right? A lot of mean variance models that are based on the last 20 or 30 years, I think aren't going to work very well if they're not adapting or incorporating the data from the 70s and other periods like that when you had meaningfully real high inflation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. 
Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. We were talking a little bit pre-show and you mentioned that we're currently in an environment with falling growth and rising inflation and you expect inflation to eventually roll over. So I'm really curious to hear why you believe that to be the case. Is it just the recessionary pressures, the stagflation that you were just mentioning? The way I think about the world and the research framework that we've developed is to view markets as primarily driven by credit and liquidity, the availability of credit and liquidity. And we measure that through the high yield spread, which is the cost of borrowing for the marginal company that's a double B or single B issuer. These are mostly small cap companies relative to treasuries. And so when that borrowing cost is going up, right, so it's getting harder for small companies to borrow money. We view that as contractionary, right? That growth is going to be slowing, right? If it's, you know, you think of there are sort of two things going on, right? Banks are repricing risk. So say banks are saying, hey, gee, this seems like a riskier time than it was three months ago. We should probably lend at higher rates to account for that risk. And that's a bad sign. And then the second thing is those companies themselves that, oh my gosh, I was going to borrow at 4% and I have to borrow at 5%. Well, maybe I should invest a little bit less or maybe I shouldn't hire that marginal worker or build that marginal part of the plant that I was going to build, right? Because the debt's not as cheap. And conversely, when borrowing costs come down, 
just like when you're thinking about the housing market, right? If mortgage rates come down, the housing market goes, you know, a lot better. And the same is true as the business world. You know, companies can borrow more, they're going to invest more, they're going to buy more things, hire more workers, et cetera. So it's stimulative. And then the second dimension is, well, are borrowing costs on an absolute basis high or low? When they're low and money is cheap, it tends to be inflationary. And conversely, when they're high and debt is expensive, it's deflationary. So you can overlay that credit-driven view of the world onto your four-quadrant growth inflation matrix and say, where are we? Where are the credit markets telling us we are? Because it's hard to know, like, is growth rising or falling? Is inflation rising or falling? Like, we'll know in a few months what the retrospective data says. We don't really know right now. You know, we're sort of fishing in the dark a bit. And using credit markets is the way we think to sort of provide direction or radar as to what economic environment we're in. If you look at where we are today, if you think about since COVID, right, COVID was the peak in high yield spreads. It was the highest spreads had gone since 2008. So you were in a major recession, a very brief one, but a very major one. And then spreads came down rapidly, right? So you went through the normal stages of credit spreads being wide and falling, which is basically low inflation, high growth, and then tight and falling, which we'd say is you know, a reflationary moment where growth is rising and inflation's coming back. Um, nobody probably expected how much inflation would come back. And then spreads started rising again in November of last year. And they've been you know, volatile, but rising since. And that typically is a stagflationary environment, right? Where you've got rising inflation, which you certainly have seen, and growth starting to fall. I think the growth starting to fall point is probably a little bit more controversial than the rising inflation. But I think that if you look at both rising rates and rising spreads, meaning higher borrowing costs for everybody, higher mortgage costs, you know, separate issue. But all these things should play out in hitting the real economy as consumer demand and business demand reacts to tighter monetary conditions. And in that environment, what you often see, and what you typically see in environments where inflation is elevated, is a higher risk of a crash and more severe crashes. And when you have recessions, you don't have inflation, right? Recessions destroy inflation and are deflationary, actually. We don't know when that will happen, right? And I think the nature of, especially this time in markets where spreads are tight, is a lot of uncertainty. And it's a period where more things could happen than will. And so I think there's an element of saying, gee, do I think there's an elevated risk that we go into a falling growth, falling inflation environment? I certainly do. And I think investors should be prepared for downside protection in their portfolios. But at the same time, who knows, right? I mean, I think who would have thought that Russia was going to invade Ukraine? And then who sitting there in the middle of this month would have thought we're going to see a massive rally in the equity markets in the middle of this war, right? We just have no idea, which is why, again, you know, buy and hold should be the largest percentage of your portfolio because this stuff is so hard to predict. But I think looking out on a sort of a nine month to a year horizon and trying to say, hey, gee, roughly what economic environment are we in and how can I best prepare my portfolio, I think is a pretty logical approach as well. You mentioned that you look at the high yield spread to try and figure out what's happening with GDP going forward or whether it's rising or falling. For those not familiar, could you define what the high yield spread is? High yield market is sub-investment grade companies. So an investment grade company is you know, Apple, Google, Microsoft. A sub-investment grade company might be, um, you know, I'm thinking like Crocs, the company that makes those uh, little sandal things, right? Like it's not a huge company, but these are, a lot of them are still brand name companies or the companies that make cardboard boxes or some of the auto companies are high yield issuers. 
So you're just thinking not the safest companies, but still companies you probably would know. Those are high yield companies. And so you look at the cost of those companies face to borrow. What are their bonds yield essentially? And then what is the treasuries of equivalent duration yield? And you take that difference. So you're basically looking at the premium that risky companies have to borrow. That's the high yield spread. And you can find it on FRED, the economic database site. And it's a wonderful metric. And in my view, the most important macroeconomic indicator to understanding the US economy. When I was looking into your research, you had proposed portfolios for each economic environment. And thinking about how Ray Dalio has influenced you, he has his all-weather portfolio, which has an equal weighting between commodities and gold. And I'm curious why you didn't include commodities in your proposed portfolio, but you did include gold. Yes, we did actually include oil and copper. So, And I think broadly you can think of, and a lot of people say, is gold a commodity or not? And whatever. I think gold is a currency, but you can also think of it as a commodity, whatever. Let's not get into that. Gold and silver, the precious metals behave very differently from the what I call the growth-sensitive commodities, namely oil and copper. And so when you really want to own oil, the first half of the cycle, so from when you're in a recession, right, think of buying oil futures in February, you know, March, April of 2020, right? And then owning those for the next year. That was a really good time to own oil and keep holding it probably through the back half of last year. Now, what's been unusual is right, typically what you'd see and what you started to see in November is as growth starts to roll over, oil starts to sell off. But instead, we got the supply shock from Russia, and so oil has gone up a lot. But gold has started to do well as well. So really, gold behaved quite normally, right? Gold did badly until about November, and then it started to do well since, which makes total sense in a stagflationary context. Um, Oil's been, been an outlier in this cycle. But I think broadly, if you think about a more tactical approach, what do you want to own? You know, What are the big muscle movements, the big things that you should be aware of, is that in the middle of a recession, Right. So when everybody is panicked, when we spent a year or two working on a, a research paper called Crisis Investing, you always know when you're in a crisis, which makes crises unique. The optimal thing to buy is small cap value stocks. So the cheapest, most illiquid, scary things that everyone's panicked about are the things that you should be going to buy in the middle of a recession because they are on sale. There's always a buyer for Microsoft, there's always a buyer for Amazon. But there's not always a buyer for some small cap, you know, industrial company in the Midwest who, you know, they might wake up on March 24th and it's all sell orders and no buys and the bottom just falls out. So if you can take the other end of that trade, you tend to do really well. That's the single biggest return driver available in markets in terms of absolute return opportunities. And then I think the other tools and lessons are really about diversification and risk reduction. As spreads are wide and rising, right, and you're entering that recessionary period, dramatic, as much exposure to fixed income as you have can possibly have, the better. That's really what bails you out in recessions is fixed income. And then when you're thinking about inflationary periods, owning oil and gold, uh, depending on your view of growth, is really meaningful as a diversifier, as we've seen over the last few months, having that commodity exposure really valuable. Now, all-weather and risk parity approaches to markets to say, hey, it's impossible to sort of predict where we are in markets. Why not just own a risk-weighted basket of commodities, gold, stocks, bonds, and risk-weight them? And that's a great strategy, right? I mean, there's a real elegance to that. But I think where I would differ from that is that I think certain market conditions demand really different approaches, right? I think 
if you start from just the basis of the middle of a recession, right? Should you be behaving differently in the middle of a recession than when you're not in a recession? I think, of course, you should be rebalancing into equities. You should be taking up your equity risk. If you're in fixed income, you should be adding high yield, right? These things are really robust in the data. You can really see them very strongly. And then I think if you go from there and say, okay, well, if I know I'm going to be doing things differently in a, the middle of a recession are the things that I do if I was worried that a bull market was coming to an end, maybe put in trend following or risk reduction rules, or maybe take up my fixed income or gold exposure. I think largely what I've been spending time thinking about for the last year or so um, is how to adapt a portfolio to different macroeconomic conditions. I like how you take this very contrarian approach and you hear over and over how growth has outperformed value over the past decade. And we've also been hearing talks of a potentially lost decade for the overall stock market with interest rates at historical lows and inflation on the rise. Do you think that small cap value might be something that someone that's, you know, has that buy and hold approach, you know, small cap value could be a diversifier for them to try and enhance their returns? Yeah, I think if you look at really any large empirical study of what works in the equity markets, you're going to come to value. And where small comes into play is that if you think there are 500 large caps and 2,000 small caps, just to round the numbers out, if you then say, well, how many stocks trade at less than five times EBITDA or trade at less than five times PE or have a greater than 5% dividend yield, right? Some pick some extreme value metric. You'll find that like nine out of 10 are small caps, right? Small cap value is just pure value essentially, right? Whereas if you constrain it to large, you're not getting the real value hit because all the really cheap stuff is in small cap. Now, the thing to note about small caps is that they're riskier and bankruptcy risk is higher than in large caps. So you get much bigger swings, especially during recessionary periods where small cap is going to sell off a lot worse than large cap. Conversely, it's going to come back a lot more when the recession ends and the recovery begins. But you have to, you know, if you're thinking about moving from large cap to small cap, that increase in volatility and drawdowns is meaningful. On the other hand, Again, almost any large-scale, long-term empirical study across markets is going to find the value works. And the more extreme value exposure you can take, the better it works. And so I think that absolutely small-cap value deserves a place, an outsized place in people's portfolio. If you think small caps are 10% of the market and small-cap value, therefore, is roughly 5%, right? I think people should have at least 10% of their money in small-cap value, right? At least a 2x overweight, given the robustness of the empirical findings about its outperformance potential. Now, more than that, you've got to have some real fortitude to take on the ups and the downs. But I think as much as you can handle within reason is probably good. Now, I think we've lived through a period where this style, small cap value, has just had atrocious performance, especially 2018 through 2020, right? If you're saying, well, the reason I want to own small cap value is because it outperforms, and someone says, oh, it outperforms, not in the last five years, not in the last 10 years, right? Were you asleep during 2018 to 2020, right? Small cap value sucks. It's the worst performing part of the market. What are you talking about? And that's true too, right? We have to grapple with that. There are long periods where it doesn't work. And I think sticking with it requires a lot of conviction. And I think a lot of grounding in the data, because again, the data is very, very strongly supportive of this and the logic of it is very strong. It hasn't, small cap value has not crowned itself in glory in the years leading up to COVID. Now, since COVID, it's done quite well. And I think people are starting to see the reasons that you have it. 
And I'd say one of the things that I would note about small cap value is that periods of volatility, especially the more economic recoveries you have, the better small cap value does. Whereas when you have protracted bull markets, those tend to favor the types of risk taking that often reward you know, people going further and further out in the valuation spectrum. And so you tend to see growth bubbles occur at the end of long bull markets. I don't think those are the conditions that we have today. And I think growth is selling off for that reason. So I think it's a very good time for people to think about small cap value, adding it to the portfolio, adding exposure, especially given how well small cap value did during the last lost decades during the 70s and during the 2000s. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. 
Yeah, that's why I mentioned that you take this contrarian approach. A lot of people, you know, want to put more money in the NASDAQ while the small cap value underperformed up through 2020. And, you know, when you buy something that's cheap, that's when you can get that outperformance. And another way to potentially diversify a portfolio full of equities is to expand into international stocks or emerging markets. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this approach. International markets are another area which has not been crowned with roses over the past few years. So it's understandable that I think people are skeptical about international diversification. Then why do I own international stocks? They seem pretty correlated with US stocks. They just perform worse. And then they say, well, all the best companies are in the US. So why do I need to go to the international markets, right? I think that that all seems right when the US is winning. But the US has been winning for a long time. I don't know that there's a reason why great Japanese companies or great European companies or great companies in the United Kingdom shouldn't do just as well, if not better, starting from much lower valuations today than U.S. companies. We just don't know. And so I think you start from saying, hey, from behind the veil of ignorance of not knowing economic conditions, why take such a disproportionate bet on the U.S., right? I mean, it just seems crazy, especially given how much cheaper international markets are and the potential for diversification. I think international investing is uh, deeply attractive, but it also is correlated with value, right? I mean, I think that the growth names that have been winning are disproportionately in the US. International markets are disproportionately value markets. So a lot of this stuff, it's the same trade or the same logic that when one of them works, the other one doesn't work as well. Emerging markets, Clay, I have a contrarian view on. I am a perma bear on emerging markets. I think emerging markets stay emerging. And I think if you look at people that make money in emerging markets, watch what they do. You know, they make their money in Brazil. What do they do? They buy a condo in Miami. They get the money the hell out of Brazil as fast as possible because what they know about their own countries, they know how corrupt these countries are. They know how risky the political systems, fragile the political systems are. These countries, most of them are one socialist away from complete economic devastation. They're one stupid invasion away from being locked out of the economic system. They're one firing of a central bank governor away from complete monetary collapse, right? The line between stability and complete devastation is so quick in these emerging economies. In our research, what we found is that the defining attribute of emerging markets is the frequency and severity of economic crises that happen three to five times as often as in developed markets and are more severe and you're less likely to recover. I think that emerging markets are sort of the original ESG, right? So in the 2000s, we all wanted to help close the gap, the income gap between poor countries and rich countries by spreading democracy and capitalism. And the way to do that was to invest your dollars in building bridges in Vietnam or factories in Thailand or um, helping make China less communist by building up their tech entrepreneur scene, right? And it all sounded good, and it was a disaster for investors who put their money there. Might have been good for the emerging markets, but it certainly wasn't good for the investors. And I think there was a conflation of a political goal with an economic outcome. And I think, frankly, neither the political goal nor the economic outcome were achieved. I'd say probably ESG investing, which is so in vogue today, is probably a doom for a similar dual failure on both political and economic outcomes. But I think that investors are suited to broadly avoid emerging markets. I think there are rare, interesting times in the EM. So generally after major crises, that can be of interest, right? Because things just get so bombed out and disastrous. 
But you've got to, again, have a lot of fortitude to take advantage of those. So I'd assume China and Chinese stocks fall into that emerging market bucket for you, or it's just something you won't even touch. Yeah. I mean, what is an equity in a communist country? I mean, who owns it? What rights do you have? I don't know. I mean, I don't understand. It boggles my mind of how much money has fallen into China. And then you think of what's even more crazy is the fad among college endowments for Chinese VC. And you're just like, not only are you investing in a communist country where who knows if you're ever going to get your money back and who knows who controls it and who knows who owns the thing. Now you want to do that in an illiquid way. So there's not even a market you can buy and sell it. You just want to give it to somebody. I mean, it just seems totally, totally nuts to me. And I know some people have made a lot of money there, but it just seems not worth the risk to me. Backpedaling to when we were looking at the big picture, since you foresee a falling growth and falling inflation environment, does that put you in a position where you're very defensive, where you're holding a lot of bonds and you're not necessarily predicting a recession or anything? You're just looking at the data and says, this is the time to be much more defensive. I think we're still, I'd still say we're in sort of a moderate risk period, right? Where I think you want to be diversified, right? You want to have meaningful equity exposure, meaningful commodity exposure, meaningful fixed income exposure. It's not a high conviction time right now. So do I anticipate it's possible that we go into falling growth, falling inflation, we enter a recession? Of course I do, right? Is the risk probably elevated today? Yes. But am I ready to go into a highly defensive portfolio today? No. The question is, what do we need to see to do that? And I'd say I'd want to see high yield spreads go about 450 or so. So they went to about 420 at the height of the Ukraine crisis. And I thought, okay, maybe we're headed there, you know, a few more bad days and we're basically there. And then markets recovered, right? And so having a reasonably high threshold for your true defensive portfolio, in my view, is a, a savvy thing to do. So no, I don't think that this is the moment to go into recession mode in your portfolio. Or this is not where spreads are. Again, we're in this moment where more things can happen that will happen. We could very well see a whole variety of economic outcomes come out next. But I think, again, both the high CPI print, and remember, periods of high inflation tend to be punctuated by sharp and severe recessions. And then second, a lot of the volatility and spreads we've seen isn't a positive signal for the economy, nor is Fed tightening generally a positive sign for the economy. I think there is a lot to be worried about, but I'm not ready to say, hey, gee, it's time to go fully defensive yet. That makes sense. Now, there's been a lot of talk lately about inflation, especially in relation to interest rates. First, CPI inflation is far higher than treasury rates, creating a negative spread between the two. The 10-year treasury today is around 2.5%, maybe slightly lower, while the most recent CPI inflation print was roughly 8%. Second, we are starting to approach an inverted yield curve as the short-term rates are currently rising much faster than the longer-term rates because of the higher inflation we've seen as of late. I'm curious what your general thoughts are on what you're seeing regarding these interest rates. I think, first of all, look, the Fed model, right, you know, the Taylor rule, is basic models of like where interest rates should be, they're too low. The Fed has kept them too low, too long any reasonable application of the Taylor rule or other sort of monetary policy formulas mean rates are four and a half, five. I mean, they should be just meaningfully higher than where they are today. You add to that that we're seeing a lot of inflation and you're going to say, well, gee, I think probably the Fed's pretty worried about inflation and all their indicators telling them they need to raise rates. And then if you say, well, gee, is there any evidence of a speculative bubble caused by rates being too low? 
and you don't have to look far for evidence of speculative bubbles in the U.S. economy. I think all that combined is going to push the Fed to be fairly aggressive and move even in the face of sell-offs in the stock market, et cetera. And so I think investors need to be prepared for that because I think it's logical what they're doing, but the risks that it ends up in a big correction in the equity market are reasonably high. You know, the pushback to that I always hear, I know you're much more knowledgeable on this than I am, but I always hear that the federal government can't really afford interest rates to rise because of the high levels of indebtedness therein. Of course, there's some truth to that. But the Fed's goal is price stability, right? It's not making government debt affordable for the US, right? It's price stability and employment, right? That's another, you know, the dual mandate. And I think if you look at those, they're clearly failing to control inflation. And so they've got to act. That's their mandate. Yes, other parts of the government might be concerned about borrowing costs, but that's not necessarily the Fed's mission. Got it. We also talk quite a bit about Bitcoin on this show. So I'm curious what your thoughts are around Bitcoin in particular. I know you aren't able to look back at a lot of data for Bitcoin as it's you know only been around for a decade. But yeah, I'm curious what your general thoughts are on that. Recently reviewed a few books for the Wall Street Journal about cryptocurrency. I'm not the world's most knowledgeable person about crypto, obviously, but yeah, I've read a few books and I've tried to think about it in a, a logical, rational framework. And I think if I had a takeaway, I'd, I'd say, first of all, I don't think that cryptocurrency is useful. I don't think DeFi or the blockchain are useful. There's not many uses for them today, and I don't see them being many uses for them tomorrow. I think people would rather use a credit card company or a bank or another strong financial institution with very high safety privacy regulations that's regulated by the government, that's regulated by industry trade groups, et cetera. You'd much rather trust your money with those types of companies. Plus, you want chargebacks. You know, what if you have a fraudulent transaction that you want them to be able to fix it? You know, having to rely on the blockchain and code is law and some random hackers out there to manage your investment portfolio. That's a niche case, right? So you have to sort of be an ideologue to want to use that DeFi system as opposed to using the standard financial system, which frankly works pretty well for most people for most uses. I think on the other hand, Bitcoins in particular does have this scarcity value, right? There's only a limited number of them. And the extent that it has a potential to become something like digital gold, I think there's a strong logic for Bitcoin as a sort of collectible or as a, a store of value or an alternative return stream that's diversifying. And I can see people owning it and holding it for that reason. And the more people that have faith in it and, it's, and believe in its value, obviously, the more its value goes up in the same sense that gold does. I think I'm more sympathetic to that use case. And I think that also makes me, again, more sympathetic to Bitcoin than a lot of the quote-unquote altcoins, because I think so many of those are, again, designed to be useful. And I don't think usefulness is ever going to be Bitcoin or crypto selling point. But I think the scarcity value and the potential to act as digital gold is. So you mentioned earlier that small cap value is a good portfolio diversifier. And many of our listeners are like you and I, where we're younger and we have many years before retirement. Are there any other asset classes you think that a millennial or someone that's younger should consider to add to their portfolio, assuming they're invested in mainly in something like the S&P 500? Yeah. So I think, you know, very broadly, remember the S&P is 60, 65% of global market cap. So adding international exposure is step one, right? I mean, you've got to have some developed international exposure and probably meaningful. 
somewhere between 35, which is market weight, and 50%, which is closer to GDP weight, is probably the answer in my book. That's sort of step one, right? There's no reason not to take that simple equity diversification and add more stocks and a broader regional view. I think the second is within stocks, the factors. And small cap value is the biggest dose of the value factor that you can get. There are other folks that advocate for other factors, you know, momentum, et cetera. I think value makes more sense to me. I think there's a lot of evidence that momentum works, but I think adding small value is is a very logical, simple step. I think from there, you know, you say, okay, what about fixed income? What about gold and oil? I'd say broadly, inflation hedges tend to be bad long-term buy and hold investments. So owning gold and oil as a buy and hold investment, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think using it as a tactical play within your portfolio, if you have a view about inflation, yes, it makes a ton of sense. That's what it's useful for. But long-term buy and hold, the record isn't good that you're going to do all that great. You're going to add some diversification to your portfolio, but you're going to reduce the long-term return. I think fixed income, on the other hand, obviously as a yield, you're going to get a decent yield. And I think you're also going to get a benefit and risk reduction from the flight to safety that you get during recession. I think that having a fixed income allocation is important. Now, as millennials, it doesn't need to be big right now, but over time, it should get bigger and bigger. And I think if you think about the big drivers of returns than fixed income, it's treasuries, which I know the yields are low. They're always low. But gee, the yields are going to go down in the middle of recession. The value of those treasuries is going to go up, and then you can rebalance out of them and into equities. And that's very useful and it diversifies your portfolio. And then the other is corporate fixed income, which earns a little bit more, has a little bit less juice in recessions, but can provide you with a return that's somewhere between treasuries and stocks. So I think that those are the big things that I'd consider. I know a lot of that's dull and boring, but most of our portfolios should be dull and boring if we're doing it right. Yeah, I think it seems a lot more dull and boring because they've maybe underperformed over the last decade. But that's you know that's how you should position yourself as an investor if you're looking to find ways to outperform the S and P 500 in a thoughtful way. Dan, before I let you go and we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about your work? Absolutely, I'm on Twitter at at for dad cap. I also have a weekly uh, research email list. It's free and sign up uh, through my Twitter bio, about 20,000 subscribers. And I think people really enjoy reading the research that we do. So if you enjoyed this conversation, I think you'd enjoy the, the weekly research. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Clay. This was great. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you will find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.